0: Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19. Our reading this morning will be verses 9 through 25. And this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their, their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire
1: Well, for our study this morning, we're gonna continue in the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter one. And we will look this morning together at verses 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 20. And again, just as a reminder, I'll do this periodically, it is not the revelations of Jesus, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Amen? Amen. amen? Amen. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of God. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, Please bow with me as I ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you in humility with thanksgiving because of the grace that's been provided those of us who are in Christ. Be covered by the Lamb, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask that you'll empower me by the Holy Spirit, to declare this incredible, glorious, beautiful, powerful image of your Son, our Savior, in majestic glory. I pray that we'd be more humbled when we walk out, as we have a new understanding of your sovereign rule and reign. That you're the just judge. That you bore the sin of many. Having become sin. You died. You rose again. And you ascended to the right hand of the Father. Where all dominion and power was granted to you in heaven and on earth. May we understand what that means by what it says this morning. And for those that are here or lost, I ask that today you'd save them, and I ask this in Christ's mighty name, amen. Jesus Christ continues to fascinate people all around the world. There have been more books, films, and television programs made about Jesus Christ than any other single figure in history. So, we must ask, how do people envision Jesus? How do you envision Jesus? When you think about Jesus Christ, what picture do you have in your mind? Some say, well, he's just one of us, but even so, one that we should definitely aspire to emulate, Others say he's a great example, wonderful teacher. Some would say Jesus was an ancient philosopher. Others, a powerful religious leader. And others, an influential social reformer. Still others might say that he was a loving but fragile person who was murdered for a noble but lost cause. Many of them say he's Lord, but have no concept of what lordship is. A new one for me came this week uh, by an advocate of black liberation theology by the name of James Cone. He said, well, if he's God, then he must be for black people and against white people. (laughs) The task of black theology is to kill gods who do not belong to the black community. Cone also refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as a first century lynching of all things. Obviously, people are grossly confused about Jesus. But scripture, beloved, is crystal clear. How do you envision Jesus? Now, I'll remind you as we study the book of Revelation that the theme of Revelation is Jesus Christ in his glory contrasted with the gospels which reveal Jesus in his humiliation, the theme of this book is the majestic revelation of the exalted, glorified Son of God who rules and reigns, seeing him here after his ascension back to heaven in second coming majesty. This is a revision of the risen, glorified, ascended Savior. We must keep that in the forefront of our mind as we move and work our way through the Revelation. Which means that this is not intended for us to know what Jesus looks like. When we see this depiction, this is not what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus is like. There's a difference. What is made visible to the Apostle John here and passed on to us is the attributes of Jesus Christ put on display through A first century apocalypse. Now when you think of the word apocalypse, remember, it's the Greek word apokalypsis. It's the English word revelation. When you think about apocalypse, you don't think about some mass war. Apocalypse simply means the unveiling of, the tearing back of the tarp, so to speak. It's an unveiling. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this apocalypse is meant to encourage God's elect and absolutely unnerve Christian pretenders. As we, as we read the words here of John in the Revelation, he does not mean what he says. Okay, remember? Principle of apocalyptic literature. He does not mean what he says because, within the context of apocalyptic literature, he writes an apocalyptic symbolism, meaning that as he writes, he means what he means by what he writes and what the symbol represents. For instance, when we read Revelation 17, verse 4, we see a woman, she's arrayed in purple and in scarlet, described as the mother of a prostitute, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, I think we all know that this isn't a staggering drunk woman, staggering around some brothel keeper or madam, She's not a mamasan who's drunk out of her mind with the blood of the saints. She represents fallen human culture. She represents one who seeks to control the masses of humanity, while she is unsatisfied with what she controls. She, at the same time, knows that God's elect are unable to be deceived. Therefore, she goes after them with vengeance to torment them and to kill them. That's what she represents. It's apocalyptic literature. So what we see this morning, beloved, is a portrayal, a proper portrayal of what Jesus Christ is like. The one who's invested with universal dominion. The conquering ruler of all things. Jesus is not waiting to establish his earthly kingdom. He is indeed right now Lord of all, Lord over all, and he dwells in the midst of His bride, the church. while at the same time, is also preparing to unleash radical judgment. <laughs> How do you envision Jesus this morning? Do you know this, Lord, that we're about ready to study? Now, the verses in focus this morning are equaled in magnificence by one other description of Jesus, which is also found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head were many diadems. He was, or he has rather, a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he's called is the word of God. In the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see him like that? (laughs) These two glorious visions, one in chapter 19, the other one in chapter 1, of the Lord Jesus Christ are a cadence call to the book of Revelation. They are the brackets in which all other visions occur throughout this book. He's on display here. It's Christ. Now, this, much, this must, must have had a, a huge impact on the original recipients, recipients of this revelation. Now remember, the seven churches in Asia Minor and all those in Christ in that day were under heavy persecution. They were undergoing extreme difficulties for the name of Christ. And John was experiencing persecution himself. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos from where he receives this revelation. Notice in verse nine, a little recap from last week. He said, I am your brother and partner in three ways. I'm your brother in the tribulation, I am your brother and partner in the kingdom and I'm your brother and partner in the perseverance that are in Christ Jesus. So three characteristics of John for which he identifies with other believers, beloved, are also the characteristics of you who are in Christ today. You share in the tribulation, you share in the kingdom and in the perseverance that are in Christ. We endure because we suffer tribulation for the name of Christ while we are kingdom children of the one who rules now. Now, this is not tribulation in terms of some defined period of time in the future that they're undergoing here, but this is a persecution that they suffer at that moment. And if you're truly in Christ, you understand what I'm talking about. If you represent Christ in the power of the Spirit, you will receive ridicule of some sort, mockery for the name of Christ. But blessed are those who are persecuted and Accused falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, he said. They revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Why? For his name's sake. Now, speaking in the present tense here, he also says, I identify you with, as as a fellow member of the kingdom of which Jesus Christ rules over now. The kingdom the kingdom he established at his first coming to be consummated at his second. Same kingdom referred to back in verse six when he said Jesus Christ made us into a kingdom. In other words, I am along with you a priest of Jesus Christ, the king now, a fellow member of the redeemed community of saints. That's who I am, beloved, your fellow brother in the tribulation. In the kingdom, I share with you in the reign of Jesus Christ as we wait for his glorious return with patient endurance. And that leads us to our study this morning, and there's five points for you outlined to kind of help you follow the text. (coughs) Under the title, What Jesus is Really Like. What Jesus is Really Like. Notice first the transcendent vision. Verse 10, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John is in the spirit, which means that he was somehow, he somehow transcends from normal human apprehension and into what is beyond normal sensory perception, It's a supernatural event that's going on here for which John transcends to see these things. So he says, I was brought by or empowered through the Spirit of God to an experience that is beyond normal senses transcending into a state which God could supernaturally reveal these things to me, taken up into the unseen, given a vision as he pulled back the veil. And what I saw is God's control and God's command over all things. That's what I saw. Paul experienced something like this. You remember? 2 Corinthians, he describes it. He said, I know this man who is caught up into paradise, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And, I, and he heard things, and Paul's speaking of himself here, that cannot be told, which, may not, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own self, my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. <clears throat> And because of the great visions that were granted to the Apostle Paul, God also gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble because of what he had experienced. So here now, John was in the spirit. And this phrase, in the spirit, also occurs in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, where John was invited to look into heaven. We see it again in chapter 17, verse 3, where an angel carries him into the wilderness And then in chapter 21, verse 10, where an angel brought him to a high place to see new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. I was in the spirit, he said, on the Lord's day. Now, the Lord's day came to be a customary way of referring to Sunday. We gather on Sunday because it harkens back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the first day of the week. That's when the saints gather. So, John says it was Sunday on the Isle of Patmos. A vision came to me, and I heard behind me a loud voice. It was like the sound of a trumpet. So, as the Spirit of God transports John into a state of transcendent vision, he's struck, notice, not by what he sees at this point, but by what he hears. It leads us to point two a trumpeting call. Verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is a voice like a trumpet. This is God's trumpet. This is God's call. Stand at attention. Psalm 47, five says, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, capital L O R D, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, with the sound of a trumpet. In the Old Testament, God gathered His people by sounding a trumpet. Ryan read from Exodus 19 this morning. At the foot of Mount Sinai, it says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings in a, in a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. What they do, beloved? They trembled. We don't become flippantly over-familiar with Almighty God. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Covered by the blood or not. So that all people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. So John here, he, he, he hears the same sound. He's told to gather the church, represented by the seven. Seven churches of Asia Minor. There were more than seven in in Asia Minor. There are upward of 12, but he calls seven because seven represents the whole. Seven is the number of completeness. Very often, God's voice or the voice of Christ in supernatural glory sounds to the hearer like a great, loud, piercing trumpet, a brilliant, piercing voice. You will not miss it. (laughs) Resounding with the, the commanding clarity of a trumpet. We will see this throughout Revelation on a number of occasions. Chapter 5, Chapter 6, Chapter 7, Chapter 8, Chapter 10, 11, 12, 14, 16, 19. You get all that? <laughs> Several times in those chapters, you hear this loud voice, this thunderous, this thunderous sound, followed by always a very sobering, humbling revelation. a crushing vision. And this is the first, which indicates the powerful, sovereign, commanding voice out of heaven. And in this case, it's the voice of the risen, glorified Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. How do you envision Jesus Christ this morning? I asked myself that several times over the past two weeks because of this. Point number three, transparent glory. We're going to camp out here for a while, beloved. Point number three, Now, normally, you don't see a voice, amen? You don't see a voice, and again, this is a vision. So, turning around in the direction of the voice, John sees seven golden lampstands, symbolic for the seven churches, and that's clarified for us in verse 20. Now, we must understand, as the church of Christ, if you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're known biblically as a saint, We are his church, we're called out ones, ecclesia, called out ones, we make up his church. So the building's not a church, it's the people that are saved, blood-bought saints that make up the church. And the church is meant as a source of light in a dark world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, you are a city set on a hill and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. When you light a lamp, you set it on a lamp stand, you don't put a basket over it, Amen. So whenever the church fails to be a luminary, in other words, whenever it fails to be that leading light, God threatens judgment upon her. We'll see that next week in chapter two, verse five. Remember therefore, church of Ephesus, Ephesus, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And in the house of the Lord, he purges out the sin within those who profess his glorious mighty name because we are a pure bride, you see, positionally. When God sees us together, he sees his perfectly pure bride because we stand positionally righteous in Christ, cloaked in the righteous robes of Christ. That's our position. When we practically don't live a life of holy righteousness, he purges that sin out because of what we are in him, you see. God chastens those he loves. Notice, it's not the lampstand that draws John's attention here so much as the vision of Christ draws him in. Now, notice what John describes. He describes someone like a son of man and then proceeds to provide with, with vivid detail the appearance of this son, son of man. Now, this takes us back to Daniel. Remember I said in the introduction of Revelation that you cannot understand Revelation unless you understand Old Testament language. We will continually be going back to the allusions of the Old Testament that are provided in Revelation. Some scholars say in the 404 verses of Revelation, there's 385, upward of 500 allusions to the Old Testament. <laughs> Whoo, that's a lot. So we're gonna be going back regularly. This takes us back to Daniel 7. Notice, as I look, this is Daniel's vision of the coming son of God who would come and then ascend back to the father. That's the vision given hundreds of years before Christ ever came. As I look, thrones were in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So what does Daniel see? He sees the Son of Man ascend to the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days, who does that refer to? God the Father. Jesus is described in Revelation just as God the Father is described in the book of Daniel. So John is seeing in the form of prophetic vision what Jesus is like. Not what he looks like. And he looks like or is like the Father. That's why Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you're not saved. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the great I am. He's the one worthy to receive dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, the Scripture said, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion foretold by Daniel. You see him? You see him? Now, the Bible uses this title, Son of Man, to reflect Jesus' transcendent majesty. What did John see? Let's look at the details. First, he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, verse 13. This is high priestly apparel. When you read about the high priest in the Old Testament, the one who interceded on the behalf of the children of Israel, you see this, Exodus 28.4, Exodus 29.5, this great high priest intercedes for those that he came to redeem. Listen to Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let me tell you something, church. He intercedes for you moment by moment. He mediates for you. He does a work of intercession. He came to do a work of mediation, to uphold the law of the Father, right? As God in the flesh, re-representing God to fallen sinful human beings while at the same time being man, re-representing man to God as the perfect sinless man a work of mediation. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he mediates for you now. That doesn't mean he's up there praying for you. He's making intercession for you, making you right in the presence of the Father because of what he did here. Hallelujah is right, sister. His head and hair both describe, notice, white as wool. Again, similar to the vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. This is radiant white. This isn't like like painting. My, my son's an artist. I'm watching him do this painting last night, and it's, he's got this white spray paint, and it's, that's really white. But that's not what this is talking about. This is holy glory. This is representing superior wisdom and dignity. Holiness, whatever that looks like in glory. This is just, just a description. His eyes, Notice said to be like blazing fire. This is an image of purity. This is an image of purification. We see it again in chapter 2.18. We see it again in chapter 19, verse 12. His eyes are like fiery torches. This is laser laser vision. Holy, omniscient, intelligent that sees through everything. He sees through it all. He sees into the heart. He holds an internal, transparent inspection. No hiding, beloved. (laughs) Nothing escapes the penetrating eyes of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 23, notice. And I will strike her children dead, says the Lord, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. He searches minds, he searches hearts. The penetrating eyes of Jesus. Then his feet. They are like glowing Bronze in a furnace, verse 15. See it again in chapter two, verse 18. Now this this picture represents, reflects the divine glory and blazing red hot judgment of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110, verse one, that teaches us that Jesus tramples down his enemies where his enemies are made his what? His footstool. Speaking of the Lamb of God, Messiah. Notice when he speaks. It is like the sound of rushing waters. This is the Old Testament language of Ezekiel. Chapter 43, verse 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. This passage of the Old Testament is now ascribed to Jesus. We see it here in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 14, verse 2, and again in chapter 19, verse 6. This is a deafening sound. A deafening sound that ought to dominate his church. How many have strayed from the word of God today? I'm talking churches with pastors who stand here and they stray from the authoritative powerful word of God. That's why you got so many people going to churches looking to be entertained. The word of God bores them, quite frankly. They sleep through sermons like this. Then, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. How do you envision this, King? How do you envision this, Jesus? Notice, kept safely in his right hand are seven stars. Those are described for us in verse 20 as angels of the seven churches. Now, the Greek word for angel can simply mean minister. This very well means make reference to the pastors of those individual churches, which is highly encouraging to me, that he holds them in his right hand. Some believe the reference is more general. It's simply a synonymous term for the lampstand, providing a twofold image of his church. I personally think that has to do with the ministers of those church churches, the seven churches. But either way, they're in his right hand, which is the source of power, and protection. When you read the right hand, the right eye, the right foot in the Old Testament, th- that represents the strongest faculties of man. But it doesn't mean that Jesus' left hand is any less strong than his right. It's figurative language. Notice out of his mouth, a double-edged sword. This phrase is used seven times in the Revelation. Revelation. This is an, an allusion to the long, double-edged haramphaya. It's a double-edged sword, three and a half feet long. And in battle, it was used to take people's heads off and to crush skulls. Literally, that's what it was used for. This double-edged haramphaya is coming out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Figurative, of course. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living, and active, sharper than any two edged sword. Now the word for sword there is Makira, it's a different kind of sword. The Mekaih was an eighteen inch long sword, and you had to be very well trained to use it properly. It took skill. This is the sword the Mekaih is what Peter used when an attempt to lop off Malchus' head in the garden, and he missed and got his ear. He wasn't a skilled swordsman. The word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature's hidden from his sight, but all, na- all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what Jesus has to say to us, obviously it's not always comforting, Amen. Sometimes he comes with with rebuke. Sometimes he comes to chastise. Sometimes he comes to judge. So the picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is fading to the background in the revelation of Jesus Christ, isn't it? (laughs) Face it. It just is. You'll see it as we unfold chapter after chapter. This is the one who has power to give life and the power to destroy. Notice his face. It was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the light that you can't look at and draw near to. 1 Timothy 6 says, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, Jesus Christ. This means it burns, it exposes, it sees through the facade of religiosity, beloved. Beloved. shining face when Matthew records the transfiguration of Jesus Matthew chapter 17 Jesus took Peter James and John up to the mount and he transfigured before their eyes from flesh into glory he records in Matthew seventeen two that his face shone like the sun you know what the response was to that of these men fear fear In other words, it's impossible to look Jesus in the face in our earthly conditions. One day we will see him as he is, and those of us who are in Christ will be what? We will be made like him. We will be made like him. So these descriptions only enhance the magnificence of the one that John sees through this vision. Now, for anyone who may not understand This morning, let me tell you this. Jesus is altogether different from us, beloved. He's not just another one of us. This, right here, this is how we are to think about Jesus. Revelation 1.1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is a fierce portrait of Christ. Is this how you envision Jesus Christ? Is this how you envision the Lord of Lords? Is this how you envision the King of Kings? Is this how you visualize this resurrected King of glory who reigns over the universe now and forevermore? (laughs) Are you able to see the majesty, the glory, the authority of the one who bore the sins of, of who? Many, Many. thank you, many. This King is not waiting for a kingdom, beloved. Beloved. This king rules with all authority now. He rules all things and all kings now and forevermore. That's the king we serve. Now, hopefully you don't picture Jesus as a a Galilean hippie throwing a peace sign out there. Don't ever envision him like that. Because many people do. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my homeboy. T-shirts with Jesus with dreadlocks. You know, your genie here to grant you your three wishes in life. Or those who are deceived by liberation theology who see him as a victim of a first century lynching? Are you kidding me? Anyone see that the other night? Just me? (laughs) If you view him like this, your view is skewed and perverted. Perverted. I mean, even for many believers today, I'm talking true believers who go to these entertaining churches, God has been demystified because sound doctrine has been abandoned while awe-inspiring worship has been replaced with entertainment. You know what to sing about me feeling like the breeze and feeling like a cloud? We sing Christ. But this will always be the result of sitting under weak, diluted teaching and spineless preaching. Come out from among them if you're around them. What's in view for us regarding this king? This king who was given dominion, who was given glory, who was given a kingdom. Obviously, beloved, this king is not weak. This king is not tepid. This king is not indifferent. He's not undecided, and he's certainly not effeminate. No rosy-cheek Jesus here. He's not in heaven crying, wringing his hands, because rebellious sinners hate him while they persecute his people. Trust me, he's not bawling. He sits in authority overall and is majestically seated in blazing, holy, fearful glory. That's who he is. That's what he's like. He is God. There's no other. R.C. Sor- Sproul said this. <laughs> You might prefer a different God. You might even try to fashion one yourself. But there's no other. End quote. Obviously, this is not a description of some passive communal tree hugger type. Or some optimistic social reformer. This is someone to be reckoned with, beloved. Beloved. The effect of standing before this king is not, and never will be some flippant response of commonality. there's no way he 's just one of us he 's a mere example of ethical goodness there's one, there 's one response to such a vision of this resurrected king, only one, just one. that leads us to point four he 's a terrifying lord verse seventeen. When I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. My homeboy? (laughs) My buddy? The response of John here is not one of reverent respect and adoration. In other words, he's not simply bowing in the, oh, this is the Lord, let me bow down before him because that's what I'm supposed to do. This is no mere act of worship designed to show respect to Jesus. Jesus he, John fell. He fell at his feet as though dead. This is a spontaneous reflex to the resurrected Lord of glory who possesses universal sovereignty over all things and all people right now. Now. With this radiance, and this glory, and this power, and this authority, and this fearfulness, this is only one of the reasons why I can understand those who adhere to some strictly future future millennial reign of Christ. Where this king, the one described before us, is going to sit in a literal rebuilt temple, he is the true temple. The one who's the true temple to sit in an earthly Israel, the one who is true Israel? In ministering a a political kingdom, the one who has dominion and everlasting authority over all things now? With a reinstituted sacrificial system of all things, the one who is the one true once and for all sacrifice, that part of it is pure blasphemy. Just read Hebrews 9 and 10. That'd be like going backwards for the king of glory. He ascended to the Father and given dominion over all things now in an everlasting kingdom. You can't take the 1,000 years literally any more than you would take literal any other number in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, the first century Jews anticipated that literal Elijah was promised in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And if you read it on the service, you say, Yeah, Elijah's coming. But when you get to Matthew 11, Jesus said, John the Baptist is Elijah. He fulfilled that prophecy. Jerusalem now stands for heaven, Galatians 4.26, Hebrews or 12.22. John sees Jesus in resurrected glory, resurrected splendor. He falls down, beloved, as though dead. It's a word that means to fall down violently. It's a paralyzed state of sheer terror. That's what the word means. Anguish that's defined as being, quote, aroused by intense concern for impending pain or danger, end quote. (whistles) So this is not a calculated effort on John's part to bow down. He fell down in fear, which is the only correct response. This is a terrifying sight. A response of trauma. Because the glorified Christ is terrifying. Many people today, so-called pastors especially, especially, attempt to domesticate Jesus. They want to tame him while they almost apologize for his hard, narrow teachings. I promise I will never do that. And they adulterate his gospel. You know what? They don't know this Jesus When Isaiah saw Jesus in His glory, prior to the incarnation, all he could say is, "Woe! I'm undone. Woe! I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. I see my sin under the glory of the Most High." How do we know it was Jesus in pre-incarnate form? Because John tells us in chapter twelve. If you read verses 37 to 41 later, you will see that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory speaking of Jesus when he spoke of him, Jesus. And the judgment at that time for the Jews is because they wouldn't believe, they couldn't believe. Just read the account. That was the prophecy of Isaiah that fell upon the religious Jews of the day, they couldn't believe judgment. In Judges 13, when Manoah, the father of Samson, saw the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, he said this to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. And then his wife, the theologian, said this. (laughs) But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and grain offering. Amen, sister. <laughs> if the Lord meant to destroy you who are in Christ, he wouldn't have accepted the sacrifice of his son on your behalf. Amen. You'll never be judged for your sin. Christ was judged for your sin. Never, believer, those of you covered by the blood, you will never stand and, and receive punishment for one sin in your life. Is that going to cause you to go out and want to sin? No, because if you're saved, you'll do everything to run in obedience because of what he did. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? What Paul say? Certainly not, because he knew some idiot would come up with that argument. Read Romans. He has those ongoing arguments with this imaginary idiot. Well, if, if more glory meaning ascribed glory because there's two kinds of glory. There's the intrinsic glory of God. There's nothing you can do to add to it or take away from his intrinsic glory. He has it in it of himself, period, alone. But ascribed glory is the glory that is due his name from us, his people. Paul says, he knew some moron would say, well, if more ascribed glory is granted to God when we sin because he throws grace upon grace, duh, duh, Well, let's go sin some more so he gets more glory, huh? (laughs) Absolutely not, he said. Fool. (laughs) Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 44. This prophet, when he saw this Lord, fell down. In other words, he was knocked down. So because it's the same Lord, Old Testament, New Testament, John finds himself in the same position. (laughs) on his face, trembling, but the word but in the Bible for us who are believers is one of the greatest words in all of redemptive history. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. Thank you, Lord is right, brother, amen. As I laid as a dead man, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not, beloved. Literally, literally stop being afraid. And afraid means a, a severe state of distress. Notice, he lays his right hand on me. Does that mean Jesus had to put down the seven stars that are in his right hand to put on, Je- on John's head? Of course not. This is apocalyptic, Literature. Symbolism. So we don't have to reconstruct every picture as we move around. Well, wait a minute. Didn't he just have seven? What did he do with them? (laughs) The point is that Jesus not only protects and possesses his entire church, he also carries in his right hand his bride. Corporately and individually. He individually reaches out to this one, John. Now, what John understands here under the holy glory of God is his wretchedness. Like Isaiah, he sees his sin. It's before him, under the glory of Christ. But Jesus, in his grace, invites those that are his, sealed by the Holy Spirit, to enter into his presence without fear. That's why we can come boldly before the the throne of grace. Because we're blood-bought. But why? I mean, how is it possible? We see throughout Scripture the response of man, and it's a correct response. You don't have any other choice but to fall dead. Jesus gives the explanation why you don't have to fear. If you're not in Christ, you better fear. Let me tell you that right now. If you're playing games with Christ and you think you're saved, you better fear. And I call you to repent today. I beseech you like Paul, I beg you to come to Christ. And if he's sovereignly working in your lives right now, I trust that he'll do just that. Come. That's not the conclusion of the message, though. (laughs) Verse 17, here's why. Here's why you don't have to fear, John. Here's why you don't have to fear if you're in Christ today. Because I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. This is the reason the revelation was written in the first place. That verse right there. That's it. Why does he say this? It's to ensure, John, that he truly, truly does not have to fear because the lion of the tribe of Judah who is fierce became the lamb that was slain. That's why. He died for the obvious wretchedness of John. He died for your wretchedness. He died for my putrid wretchedness. John has just seen Jesus as the fulfillment of Daniel 7. That's overwhelming in and of itself. The one invested with universal sovereignty. Now, the one who is the inescapable judge of all, and who's overall, goes on to identify himself. Notice this. He says, First, I am the first and the last. This is a title used only for God. We see it three times in the book of Isaiah and we see it three times in the book of Revelation in reference to Jesus. God. It's very much like what he refers to himself as in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, similar to what he says about himself as being the beginning and the end. And then when we get to the last chapter of the Revelation, he uses all three of them in one verse and he assigns those titles to himself. Look at Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in each one of those verses, the emphasis is on his eternality, i.e., his deity. Mighty God. He is life without limitation. He's life without borders, without restraints, without restrictions. That's why John 1.4 says, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. John 5.21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. I am the resurrection and the life, He said in John 11. So this title, I'm the first and the last, is spelled out by the next title pronounced by the Lord, verse 18, and the living one. (laughs) In other words, he said, I'm the first and the last, that is, I am the living one. I bear life because I am life. I'm the ever-living one. And the only way to live forever in glory is to be in the ever-living one or you will experience the second death with separation from God to be thrown in the lake of fire to suffer forever and ever and ever outside of him, only to face him in his wrath. And what's the validating proof behind this statement that the Lord throws out there? Quite simply, notice, I died, (laughs) and behold, I am alive forevermore. He voluntarily submitted himself to death. He conquered death. Death could not hold hold Jesus Christ. Christ put death to death in his death. And in his death, the eternal Lord of glory, think about this, actually gained something. He actually gained something. He gained authority over that which he subjected himself to for 33 years. The created realm. John 1.14 says, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, dwelt among us, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 20.18 to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How do you envision this, Lord? And as a result, notice what he says. I have the keys. Notice this. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, we're going to see this phrase repeat itself a number of times in Revelation. So the question is this morning, what does it mean? (laughs) Hades? Well, in Greek mythology, Hades was this imaginary god the god of death and the dead. The king of the underworld who ruled over the dead, so to speak. Greek mythology. And eventually, over time, Hades became known as a place. The place of the dead, or the realm of the dead, for which the gateway into, or the doorway of, was death itself. Jesus voluntarily entered into that realm and Hades could not contain him. Remember, no man takes my life, Jesus said. I lay my life down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Jesus would not have died lest he yielded himself up to death in the first place. Now, it's very interesting. This is great. At the foot of Mount Hermon, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, is a town called Caesarea Philippi. If you were in Israel with us, you stood here with me and under this sheer rock wall is this large cavern. Remember that, guys? It's this huge cave. This cave was known as the abyss where in that day another false god, Hermes, was said to have carried away the souls of the dead into Hades. Now many people met their death at the mouth of this gate of Hades cave in ritual sacrifice. They'd be thrown down from above in this cavern, which in those days, uh, underground water flowed from inside, up and over, and into the surrounding little string, springs and streams and so on. And if the victim thrown from above disappeared into the water, it was a sign that Hermes had accepted the offering. But if the blood of the victim Came up in the water in the local springs, it was revealed that the sacrifice had been rejected. All mythological, right? You following me? Standing somewhere in the vicinity of this cave is where Jesus asked to the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. The Son of God, Peter said. Jesus went on to say, Peter, the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You haven't come up with this on your own, in other words, but my Father who is in heaven, he's revealed it to you. And Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Imagine standing there. And then he went on at that point, from that time, verse 21, Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the ever-living one right here did burst forth from the grave on the third day, defeating death, defeating Satan. And he alone is Lord over all of that fortress and he holds its keys. Do you get the picture? He determines who will be contained and who will be released from that place, the place of the dead. And if you're in Christ, you know that you will be resurrected from the dead. If you die today, you will leave this body and you will go be with the Lord. Like that. You won't even see death. Your body will see death. You won't see death. If you're not in Christ, you die today, you will see death and you'll be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth and one day you too will be resurrected for the lake of fire. If you're in Christ, you'll be resurrected with a body fit for eternal glory on a resurrected earth. Say amen to that. Remember, he said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, to the first century church going through this kind of persecution in this day, when they receive this glorious letter and see this picture of Christ, they hear the words of Christ Don't fear Rome, beloved. Don't fear what they'll do to your flesh. I have the keys of death and Hades and to you who live today with me right here in Pacific Hope don't don't fear oppressive forces who hate Christ who mock you who ridicule you you don't have to fear this world system you don't have to fear the harsh unbelief of your brother or your mother or your professors I hold the keys Jesus said in John 14, 19 because I live you what? You will live also. And because I live and hold the keys of death, my beloved saints have conquered Satan. Revelation 12 verse 11 says this. You've conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. All believers, past, present, and future, have overcome Satan because of the blood of the Lamb, beloved. Defeated. And the death of Christ is the ultimate basis for the ability to overcome the evil one. In what way have we overcome? Quite simply, that through Christ's death, they've been declared not guilty of all accusations launched against you. Sin forgiven as far as the east is from the west. In addition to that, you're actually made righteous, defeating Satan, the blood of the Lamb. Do you know him? Well, I grew up in church. I didn't ask you that. Do you know him? I walked forward at eight years old. I didn't ask you that. Do you know him? Are you born again from above in him? Are you covered by the blood of the lamb? By the way, who did Christ die for? Ultimately, he died for God. God. He died for the Father, and the Father was satisfied in his death. Hebrews 2.17, so that he, Christ, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and the hate of God against sin and justified many in the process. This is the love of God that we sung about this morning. This is the love of God, the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ, sacrificed his only begotten son. Therefore, 1 John 4, 9 says, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, satisfaction for our sins. Jesus turned away the righteous anger of God and was satisfied because Jesus satisfied the demands of his justice on our behalf. He did this in order, once again, to fulfill the love of God on behalf of you, a sinner saved by grace. Do you know him? Last point, very short. He's a teaching shepherd. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So notice, Jesus now reissues the assignment to John. Why? Because back in verse 11, he gave him the assignment, write what you see, but John fell in fear and terror, so he's reminded, don't forget, write these things down. (laughs) Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Write out the vision, the things that you have seen. That's what we just looked at. The glorified, majestic Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. The content, write down those those things that are. We'll look at those beginning next week, chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after that, and that is the kaleidoscope of imagery that we will see through this vision, through this apocalyptic literature penned by John, given by God to Christ, through an angel to John to write for us. It's encouragement for a suffering church. That all the temptation we face, we can conquer in Christ. We can persevere. Because of Christ. So I pray, beloved, that as we study the book of Revelation, we will see him as he is as we study through the book of Revelation. I hope that's your hope. So in Revelation, it's Christ who holds center stage. He's the Alpha and Omega, He's the first and the last. Everything is focused on him, not some strange apocalyptic war movie strange things have been written about and filmed about this book has nothing to do with that. has everything to do with the lion of the tribe of Judah who became a lamb. And this is what the Old Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles have prepared us for. A foretaste of the majesty and the glory of Christ who holds the church and the world in his hands. He's in control. You think this is a fight against Jesus and the devil, like they're equal powers? Hardly. He's defeated, crushed. He's the sovereign. So you're either safe in his hand this morning, or you will face him in his wrath. Please, please, don't fool yourselves. Are you in Christ? And if you've been born again, which is all the work of God, it produces a life of conversion. Come to Christ. Father, we thank you for the lion that became a lamb We thank you for this glorious, radiant, powerful description of the one who makes intercession on our behalf. Thank you that in his humiliation, he became a man, that he allowed those that he created to spit in his face to blindfold him and to punch him and to mock him and to scourge him and to slap a crown of thorns on his head and then beat him on the head with sticks. And yet he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely for I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again and he did just that and we rejoice and we sit here on Sunday morning because of his resurrection and we see the result of his glory of his ascension. So Lord, may you bless your church this morning. Build up the saints. May we all, beginning with me, have a proper picture of my Savior, Jesus Christ, in my own mind. And may my brothers and sisters have a proper picture of our Savior in their mind. For those here this morning, Lord, who are playing games who don't know you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grant them repentance just as the book of Acts says. They rejoiced because you, God, had granted the Gentiles repentance. Grant them repentance, Lord. Give them eyes to see. Take out a heart of stone. Replace it with a heart of flesh. Cause them to walk in your ways, I pray. May your church be greatly encouraged May our time of fellowship this afternoon be one in which rejoices over our Lamb and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.